0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. Harper academic calling Jim St. Germain. Jim was born into poverty in Haiti and moved to his grandmother's cramped Brooklyn apartment at a young age. In his book, A Stone of Hope, he vividly recounts his life in Brooklyn, navigating his world of gangs, drugs, and street violence. At age 15, he was arrested for dealing crack cocaine, but he was fortunate enough to be sent to a detention facility where he was given the mentoring and positive reinforcement that had been absent in his life up to that point. Since then, he has earned a GED and a college degree, and he now works as an advocate for at-risk children.
1: Okay, so today we are here with Jim St. Germain, author of A Stone of Hope. Jim, thanks so much for being here with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, So the first question that I would like to ask you about your memoir is the types of stories that are told in Stone of Hope. So you're telling your story, um, and your story is an immigrant story. It's an insider versus outsider story. It's the story of a first-generation college student. So I was wondering if you could talk with us a little bit about the kinds of available stories that you're telling when you tell your story in a Stone of Hope.
2: Yeah. So great question. I think that the book for me is um, very much accessible to anyone, any Mm -hmm. reader, Uh, in particular, as you talked about earlier, uh, the first aspect of it is sort of like the outside uh, person looking in. right? As a young man who was born in Haiti, I had this sort of like fantasy and picture of what America looked like, um, mostly from TV. Um, as you know we talked about, yeah. you know, I thought that life would be like Kevin's from home alone, right? And my toughest job was to keep Joe Pesci out of my A <laughs> really beautiful home. Um, with so, the microcar. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was obviously um a part of the story and when I moved here as a kid, that was upended, right? It was changed right away. What I encountered was more like the wire. Uh so that outside perspective to me, is critical, right? And I think most people who come from a different country can relate to that. And not just a different country. Sometimes you go to a different state or neighborhood or whatever, Mm -hmm. and what you thought you would actually um, gain is not exactly what's presented to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one. And the other part is just growing up as a young man, a young black man in America. Mm -hmm. And that itself is very much um, a journey. And there's so many things you have to try to navigate and, you know, maneuver around and just to be able to survive and see the next day. So it was always like survival of the fittest mm-hmm. each day and trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And then, which led me into the system, which is a whole nother beast of itself, uh, having to go through to go through the system for three years as a young man. Uh, not having the family support that I needed, not really understanding what the system was about and what this country was about, I'm referring to the juvenile justice system, Uh, dealing with the legal aspect of that, not understanding what my attorney was really saying to me when she said, well, you know, your disposition, such and such and such. And then through that, the individuals throughout my journey that were always there for me, whether it was Walton when I was in uh, MS-61, my junior high school, or Christine, who was my first attorney, and then Marty, and then the family teachers, which I lived with in a group home that I stayed in for years. And obviously, those individuals, I believe, were the vessels that allowed me to be the person I am today, right? They refused to give up on me, and they saw potentials and greatness in me, and they wanted to extract that even when I was fighting uh, back. Um, And then the transition again to going to college, which was very much a very unique experience for me. As I mentioned in the book, the way Issa sold going to college to me was she told me it's a very independent sort of like journey, right? You have to be your own person. You have to pick your own classes and you have to go to school. There were no one there there to tell you, well, you need to go to school. You need to do your homework. Your professor just said, hey, this is what I'm expecting from you. And you have to, you sort of like have this contract with your professors. Uh, But also she knowing my mindset at the time as a young man who wasn't so familiar with college, she told me that, well, you would find so many beautiful young women in school. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes the way to (laughs) sell things to young people is to tell them something you think they would like. Uh, So that was very much appealing to me. And then after that, my journey working with young people and then going into policies and working with President Obama or Uh, Governor Cuomo, Mayor Bloomberg, um, different organizations trying to create a world where my story is no longer a story. So the book pretty much, you know, cover so many different things and aspects of life. And I think that's why it's very much accessible to anyone who picks it up.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I want to circle back at some point a little later to um, the work you're doing now. But for right now, um, these different types of stories in the book, what do you think students can take away from those stories?
2: Well, as I've mentioned uh, just now, there is a story in this book for every uh, individual. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in particular, when I think of students, being a student is not always an easy thing, right? Uh, Obviously, you have different things you need to juggle. Um, You might come from an environment or a neighborhood or a family or household where education is not the number one priority, right? You have folks who are dealing with so many other obstacles and struggles in life. And so that student is left on his or her own to basically figure out how to be successful as a student, right? Whether it is if that person is in junior high school, high school or college. And uh, so I think that young people or just students in general reading this book can find a path forward from through my journey, right? Mm-hmm. As a young man who heard the word college for the first time when I was about 17 years old. That was the first time I heard the word college and it stuck out to me. Uh, So I think that they can learn from my journey what some of the strategies I used to be successful, right? So spending a lot of time in the library. And also there are times where I understood that being in school, whether it was going to the gym, doing homework, or just hanging around. Would keep me away from the other distraction outside of school. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are so many stories in this particular book that young people, um, I keep saying young people, students mm-hmm. will find very helpful, right? The uh, notion that you have to be uh, pretty much independent, you have to hold yourself accountable. No one will certainly walk you through the process anymore, no one will hold your hand, right? So your success or your failure pretty much lies on. Your ability to be responsible, your ability to get the work done without someone constantly being on your back. Now, your professors will help you through the process, but uh, it's sort of like the saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? Mm -hmm. So as a student, you understand that um, this is an investment, and this phase of your life will probably determine... What the rest of your life look like. Mm-hmm. This is also a place where you meet some of the individuals who will contribute to your success or your demise. Um, you know, that's what the place for college, is not just a place where you go in and you learn, but a place where you build your friendship and your future co workers and colleagues mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. So I think uh, students will certainly find some really real concrete and personal stories in the book regarding how to be successful in, a, in an academic setting. That's fantastic. That's
1: yeah. great. Yeah. So one of the things that stuck out to me as I was reading A Stone of Hope um, is sort of the tension between systemic failures um, and systemic social issues like poverty um, gang violence um, violence in general, crime um, and personal responsibility and one of the things that I think is unique about your story is that while you acknowledge and talk about how systems can fail kids Mm. of a certain uh, socioeconomic background Mm. Um, and while that's important and not something to ignore and not something to sort of set aside you also really account for yourself right. and your own behavior and responses and reactions to certain situations that you found yourself in. Right. Um, and at one point, um, you say in the book, what happens when wrong place, wrong time means your own community? And so I'm wondering if you could talk with us a little bit about sort of that dynamic in the book. Um the idea of taking responsibility for yourself and sort of owning your own actions and decisions um, versus systemic problems that are there in the world right. and that you either have to you know deal with or blame right. for the for the entirety. So how do you how do you think you struck that balance as a person?
2: Yeah, well, that that's a very deep question uh, because I am very much aware. Of our history, right? America's history and the way we do things, uh, this systemic failures that can pretty much play a major role in a young person's life, right? Mm-hmm. So, as we talked about earlier, the socioeconomic status, you know, the level of education your parents receive, mm-hmm. the neighborhood which you grew up in, right? Again, where sometimes you have families and kids who would wish that they can move out of these neighborhoods, but mm-hmm. they don't have the means to. Uh, so they have to try to find a way to maneuver within all of those um, structures and obstacles which they face on a regular basis. But at the same time, I also understand that individual behavior or individual uh, decision can also either help or make things worse. So I'll give you an example. When I was in the juvenile justice system, I remember I, I wrote about the also in the book. I was sitting on the stairs one day at this home that I was in, and I realized that I had to make some changes and I basically made a deal with myself and said, "Hey, look here's how life works. You can't control everything. you can't control how fast the judge send you home or whether you're going to go back to a stable home, a home where there is food, and you know there is um peace, and there is a uh, um sort of like productive environment for learning, but what you can control is whether you stop smoking or join a gym or read a book. Mm-hmm. And once you actually take ownership of the things that you have control over, I believe that other things start to fall in line. That's my personal um, philosophy mm-hmm. about life. Now, it doesn't mean that those major, uh, sort of like general systemic issues, right, such as racism, uh, Class. They don't just go away. They're yeah. not going away, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, but I also think that what you do as an individual, even as a young person, will either help or make things worse. Mm-hmm. So I understand that general issues and systemic issues have to be coupled with personal sort of, like, decision-making. I Mm -hmm. don't want to use the word personal responsibility in a sort of, like, conservative way where you just pull yourself by your bootstrap. Right. Right, because I believe that if you don't have boots on, then you can't pull yourself by your bootstrap, right? Yeah, great great point. Um, So I'm not saying that it's all on that young person. also, I understand that the adolescent brain development, it's a process. Mm -hmm. And a young person, what makes sense to you and I, doesn't always make sense to someone who's 15. Yeah. Right? So I, I get all of that. But nonetheless... I think holding yourself accountable and taking control of the things that you actually can control definitely is connected to the bigger picture and the systemic things which you will face. right? So you can't control whether someone at Harvard will give you a job if you come for a job interview. But you can get a college degree, get an education, and Mm -hmm. put yourself in a position to at least interview for a job. Right. right? So you've done your part in that sense. Mm -hmm. So I believe that in my book, um, Stone of Hope, I try to acknowledge both sides of the coin as much as possible. Because I also don't want students or young people to simply um, just blame systemic issues without holding themselves accountable. Because... Truthfully, we are a part of the system, right? The Mm -hmm. system is us. The decisions we make Mm -hmm. and what we do. So each individual contributes to its success or its failure.
0: Great. Absolutely, yeah. Um, So, Jim, decision makers who are making these policies that affect vulnerable youth, um, a lot of them are making their decisions from offices. They don't really know what these kids are going through. Right. What um, what would you say that they really need to know in making these decisions that they don't necessarily know right now?
2: Right. I've heard this quote from a friend of mine uh, who said that those closer to the problems are usually closer to the solution. I think mm-hmm. this is from Glenn Martin, a very great advocate in the criminal justice system. So, those closer to the problems are usually closer to the solutions. I don't believe that As an outsider, I can come in and tell you what's best for your household, right? I can have suggestions, but I don't necessarily know exactly what will work best for you. So if I have the authority over making decisions for your household, the best way I think we can achieve something is for us to work together, a partnership, Mm -hmm. not for me to directly dictate what is it that you're going to do. I don't think that works. So when it comes to policymaking it's very much the same thing right? right and i even if you think of it on a bigger level when you think of the federalism system we have which states have power and local governments have power and the federal government has power mm-hmm. i think that all politics is local as they say because those closer to the issues are usually closest to the solutions so though washington make laws and they pass them down but states also have rights and cities have rights and i think the people who designed this country knew that notion in terms of those closest to the problems or closest to the solutions. So I think when it comes to policymaking, it's very much the same thing. They need to be educated just like everyone else. So um, a part of what I've been doing in the last 10 years or so in my life is to be that person who educates them on certain issues, right? Because um, if you don't necessarily know what it feels like to walk into a school hungry and um, having not sleep the night before because your parents were fighting or um, not receiving the care and the love you need from your father who's not there, which obviously affect your emotional um, behavior, then to make policies that affect that population without consulting with them and without learning the issues, to me, is very Mm short-sighted. So policymakers out to educate themselves just like everyone else right that's why we have advisors um, that's why even well some presidents take um, advice from their cabinets right because they don't know it all and that's how they make the best decisions um some presidents <laughs> so um, yeah, so so that's that's very much um, a thing to me and, and I, I strongly believe in that so I believe that Um, the people which we're making decisions for, not for. We should make decisions with them, not for them. Right? It should be a partnership. And when it comes to youth issues, educational issues, even if you're a professor, you're teaching in a school, I think that it's really great to democratize the process. Right? There are things, obviously, you want the kids to learn, but then there are other things you want to give them a voice. You want to allow them to um, be a part of that decision-making process because the other thing is that People buy in more when they're invested in something, when they know that their voices are taken into account, accountable, right? When their voices are taken into account, I mean, they give more, they do more because they're like, you know, I've contributed to this, uh, so I'm going to give it a little bit more. You think about a business, right? You work, most people who own their own businesses work harder because if that business fell, then they have skin in the game, so policy making, uh, to me is very much the same thing.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more now about the work you're doing right now?
2: Yeah, so the work I do, uh, which is always hard to describe it. People, I get this question all the time. It's, mm-hmm. you know, living in New York City, everyone mm-hmm. wants to know what you do yeah. because if you don't do something fancy, then you're nobody. Um, so people are always like, What do you do? and I'm uh, my answer is usually, uh, I don't really know. Um, that's because I believe that I do a lot of different things but Mm -hmm. all of them are connected to creating a world where my story is no longer a story. Where regardless of your socioeconomic status, your skin color, your background, um, your sexual orientation that you get the same opportunity to pursue your dreams and what makes you happy and to um, sort of like have access to what every other individual want, right, which is a peaceful mind and the ability to feed your family and the ability to control your own destiny and not be discriminated against or not face certain um, challenges. And I particularly want to create that world for young people um, because I think kids are most vulnerable. They did not choose which family they were born into, um, which economic status they were born into, which neighborhood, which country, which state. They were just born into these things. So it's our job to create a world where, regardless of what circumstances they come into, they still have the same path forward. So I do that through my nonprofit organization, which is PLOT, Preparing Leaders of Tomorrow, where we provide mentoring, college, and job preparation for at-risk and formerly incarcerated kids. I do that as a residential care advocate for the city of New York. I work with young people who are currently in our juvenile justice system, and I ensure that they get the services, um, whether it's mental health, education, employment opportunities, to not come back into the system, to not be a part of this vicious cycle of going in and out of the criminal justice system. I do that by advocating for policies which I believe are best for young people, right? So our less successful campaign here in New York was Raise the age. For a very long time, New York and North Carolina's were the last two states in this country that automatically tried 16 and 17 years as adults, regardless of the crime. So for me, if you tell a 16 and 17 year old that they can't drive, they can't buy alcohol, they can't smoke, they can't on a credit card, um, they can't serve on a jury, which is the direct link to the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. But then you also turn around and tell them, well, if you commit a crime or any infraction, if you make a mistake, you can be tried as an adult knowing that their brain is not developed until the age of 28. Science tells us that. The Supreme Court agrees with that. Uh, So New York was still practicing this very draconian kind of policy. And as a young man who was fortunate enough to be tried as a a juvenile, I know the importance of having a second chance, which is most of the time for a lot of us, a second chance is the first chance because we didn't have one prior to that. Um, So we've worked on that campaign for a very long time. Uh, recently, we got a we got a, um, a bill that raised the age. It's not a perfect piece of legislation, but it certainly moved the ball very close to where we want it to be. So that's pretty much some of the work I do. And now, obviously, I'm an author, so mm-hmm. I get to um, pass down this uh, passion and purpose of mine on paper. And I want to share it with the world and um, uh, hoping that people will take what they can from it. So I get closer to that goal of creating a world where we all get a chance to be who we want to be. Mm, That's great. And
0: congratulations on that recent success. Thank you. Um, So how would you say that students who feel passionate about this um, or maybe on a track to do something like this with their lives, how could they get involved in making a difference?
2: Yeah, I I think that first it has to start with compassion and understanding the issues, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because ultimately we all have things that we're passionate about, or things that move us, or things that bother us, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's something you feel that is unfair, or unjust, or something that you think you want to improve, or um, you want to change, it literally takes just some effort, right? And that effort is very much um, connected to the things we do on a regular basis, right? So whether it's registering someone to vote or whether it's um, calling your local senator to tell them an issue that you think he needs to address whether it's mentoring a young person and providing to them what you had or did not have right, which can be some wisdom or guidance uh, whether it's marching for an issue you passionately um, sort of like believe in so for me when it comes to translating our sort of like um, academic career to actual life-driven kind of purpose is very much taking the step to do so and not wait for someone else to do it Uh, because we all have to contribute to the society which we live in if we want to make it a better place. Uh, So, you know, first it comes with passion. If you're passionate about something, you're going to pursue it. And no one is an expert or no one is better than anyone else in anything that we do. We find something that we think we want to make a difference in and then we go for it. And um, having confidence to know that this is what you want and nothing will stop you from achieving that is very much half of half of the way there, right? Um, I have don't look at myself as being less than anyone else, right? So whether I, when I've been in room with President Obama, I've been in rooms with governors and senators and whoever you can possibly think of, I always view myself as a person who can contribute to anything as much as anyone else. And not in a cocky way, um, not in an arrogant way, but in a way that I know that I've been through some stuff and those experiences can help to make the world a better place to shape the world. And every person have a story. Again, which is why this book is special because I think everyone will find their story in this book whether you were that vessel for someone who wants to be that vessel for someone, whether you're that immigrant kid, whether you're that kid who experienced challenges in the street, or that college student who's trying to succeed in, in a you know really tough academic world. Mm-hmm. So um, it's there, and we all have to go for it. And this book, again, is a very great start because I think reading it will give you that little push you need, um, which is the feedback I'm getting now from everyone who've read the book so far. Mm-hmm. It's a call
0: to action. Yeah, yeah absolutely that's yeah. excellent I think that's great advice
2: yeah.
1: so we just have one more question for you and it's a question we ask all of our podcast guests okay mm-hmm. who is your favorite teacher
2: Miss Olio. She's actually in the book. I mm-hmm. um, talked about her we, in the book. We,
1: Michael and I, when we were talking about this um, podcast, Michael said, he's like, Do you know, this is probably, when we talk to Jim, mm-hmm. this is probably the first time that we're actually going to have read about the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that is the answer to this question. So yeah. please, please tell us about her. So, uh, you know,
2: um, I've had some great professors in college. Uh, she was, she's, she's an Italian woman, and she's like, feet tall <laughs> um very much napoleon complex she's
1: like Sophia petrillo yeah Northern pretty much <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but
2: she's um she's very uh strict but with kindness and love she expect the best from everyone so even to this day she she will like correct me every time I use the wrong vocabulary and I usually say well Ms. Olio did you actually Jim is not ask is ask it's like, can you repeat it with me and she would always get me to say it the right way um, she just challenged you in a way that makes you want to be a better person and um, make learning fun also the other thing that she had that really helped was she was a history teacher and history was my favorite subject I love knowing what happened in the past because I believe we usually always repeat them um, whether good or bad so she was a history teacher which I loved a lot and she would not give up on you and we've been friends since I was in the juvenile justice system I first met her when I was about 15 and now I'm 28 we're still friends and we text all the time we I go to her house all the time and you know Italian she's always feeding me and the food is like, take this, take this, eat that, eat that, you know, you're hungry. I'm like, you know, I'm not hungry. She's like, yes, you are. Um, so she's definitely, um, a very special person. And, um, just like, you know, she's not alone. I I think the teaching profession itself is very much a selfless profession. And I don't know any teacher who teach for the money or for anything else. Um, so, you know, I'm very much appreciative to teachers. And I think, we do not acknowledge and appreciate our teachers enough. Um, well, hopefully, you,
1: know. you can send her this podcast episode so she can hear that lovely answer. She will. The that, that, that you gave about her. Well, Jim, thank yeah. you so much for joining us today. <laughs> thank you.
2: Thank you. It's been great. It's been an awesome, and I really appreciate you guys for having me. And everyone, go ahead and buy the book, A Stone of Hope. <laughs> You'll enjoy it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.